Well, go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew 12 this morning. Matthew chapter 12, as we near the midpoint of Matthew's gospel, we see the earthly ministry of Jesus turn a corner. We know that he's been encountering more and more opposition from the religious leaders. They have rejected him in their hearts. Now they're just looking for an occasion to accuse him and discredit him before the people, but it's not working. So starting with our text this morning, another pivotal corner is turned. Now the religious leaders resolve to kill Jesus. It's the only card they have left to play if they want to finally be rid of him. And unless you're brand new to Christianity, you probably already know that they will succeed. Eventually, their malicious motives will lead to the cross. That doesn't take place here, but their plotting begins right here. Matthew 12, looking at verses 9 through 21. And it's pretty fascinating and telling to question what leads someone to murder. I think we'd have to agree murder is the worst crime because it's so irreversible. I mean, it's it's bad enough to unjustly take human life, but then it it can't be undone. What leads someone to go so far as to just malice and then like murder? Well, one FBI study profiled the most common motives for murder and identified the big three, lust, money, and power. Money, that makes sense. It's the gateway to every other desire you might have. Lust also makes sense. We know human passions are a strong thing. And no one would be surprised by the motive of powers having control or dominion. To boil it down even further, everyone has a set of wants and desires, whatever they might be. But what happens when you don't get what you want because another person is standing in the way? Or you get what you want, but then you lose it because someone else has taken it from you. Well, the initial response to that is anger. And we're all guilty of this, that there's, this is no righteous anger, as if you are upset that God's glory has been diminished. No, this is a, a sinful anger because you didn't get your way. This is often accompanied by impatience, slander, strife, jealousy, envy. These are all sinful responses to opposition, but they're all very common to man. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, would identify this response as murder in the heart. Spiritually, all of us are guilty of murder in the heart. Now, when it comes to physical murder, thankfully, most people are restrained from going that far. But that response differs only in degree, not kind. Just take these responses to not getting what you want and amplify them, and you can start to see how someone could go so far as to eliminate someone standing in their way of their wants and desires deep down. And the Bible actually confirms this is the ultimate motive for murder. James 4, 1 through 2 says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. The Bible identifies lust as the core of murder. Lust there, not sexual in nature, it just means any strong desire. You want something so much, you're willing to do whatever it takes to get it or to keep from losing it. Now, with this in mind, I think it's helpful to remember our Savior, Jesus, was murdered. That's sometimes a loss on us because we know that as the Savior, he willingly gave his life as a sacrifice for sins, but still, technically, that came about through murder, the unjust taking of innocent life, our Savior was murdered. 
Just think about that. Now, Christ's murder doesn't take place here in Matthew 12. But again, this is when the malicious, murderous intention begins of his enemies. And this has to do with power. Jesus most definitely stood in the way of their chokehold of power over the people, the religious leaders. This is not lost on Jesus. He, he knows their hearts. He knows fully well that there's this group of people, these religious figures. They want nothing more than for him to die. And think about that as well. I sincerely hope none of you have ever been the subject of a serious death threat. But what's that like? What a source of constant fear and anxiety. Jesus lived under that cloud for most of his ministry. And we see that cloud form right here. Matthew 12, 9 through 21. This passage, a little bit longer. There are two episodes in this text we're going to handle back to back. The first is found in verses 9 through 14 where Jesus heals on the Sabbath. We have another Sabbath controversy. Continuing from last week, another incident where Jesus violates the artificial Sabbath laws of the Pharisees, thereby drawing their ire, coming under their condemnation. But against this backdrop that only shows his heart of compassion. This is followed by verses 15 through 21, where Matthew steps in as the inspired author And he connects the dots between everything happening so far and the messianic ministry of Jesus, showing that it's right on track. Jesus as Messiah, he may not be the Messiah the Jews were expecting, but he's exactly the Messiah God told them to expect in his word. Matthew reminds us Jesus is right on track with what God said of the Messiah in the Old Testament. We'll see that as well. But you have this, this really backdrop of malice, And against that dark backdrop, though, the mercy and the ministry of the Messiah shines. And that's what we want to find and discover this morning to appreciate. We have a longer section, so we'll read and we'll explain as we go. But we'll put it this way. Against the backdrop of malice, we aim to see the mercy and the ministry of the Messiah on display. That we might behold him. And we'll see where that goes. Just breaking it into two halves. The mercy of the Messiah on display, the ministry of the Messiah on display. So let's start with the first half. We begin with the mercy of the Messiah on display. And we'll start in verse 9. So Matthew 12, get to verse 9. Speaking up from last time, it says, Departing from there, he went into their synagogue. So verse 9 is taking us to another Sabbath controversy. The setting is a synagogue, which was for the Jews, their regular place of assembly and worship on the Sabbath. Notice it says their Sabbath, almost as if to indicate Jesus knows he's going on their turf. He knows the scribes and the Pharisees are out to get him. This next episode will only further display the extent to which he is Lord of the Sabbath in all things. But had the setting, verse 10, it says a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus asking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? So next, we're introduced to this nameless man. Don't know anything about him, except this defining feature that his right hand was withered. His hand had become paralyzed or disfigured, but it wasn't amputated, so it had been left to wither away. Luke 6 adds the detail that it was his right hand. This would have severely limited his options for living and working in the ancient world. So he must have had a terribly difficult life just getting by. But on this Sabbath, this man has attended synagogue. 
Now, did he show up to hear from Jesus or to be healed from Jesus? Or was he just there like to go to Sabbath or to go to synagogue rather as a bystander? We don't know. But we do know that in the eyes of the Pharisees, he's just a prop. He is a, a pawn in their game to catch Jesus violating their law. Notice the careful wording of verse 10. It says, they question Jesus asking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? You see that the Pharisees are the ones who point out this man to Jesus. They bring him to the Lord's attention. And then they ask him, hey, you see that guy over there? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Why would they do this? Well, it's because they secretly hoped Jesus would heal him on the Sabbath, not to alleviate this man's suffering, but merely to trap him, breaking their law. The parallel Luke 6-7 says the Pharisees were closely watching Jesus to see if he healed on the Sabbath in order that they might find reason to accuse him. Once he healed the man, they would say, we got you. We caught you right-handed. You violated the Sabbath. No one can come from God and be a lawbreaker. You just have to realize the sad reality that the Pharisees, they fully accepted by now that the Lord had the ability to heal people. I mean, it was no longer in doubt that he had the power to heal. He had done too many undeniable miracles at this point. The only thing they can do to to oppose him is to claim that his power comes from the devil. He heals by the power of Satan, which is what they'll do later in this very chapter. But here, they're only concerned with leveraging the Lord's power to heal, to trap him in their laws. Now, speaking of their law, last week we took a longer look at their Sabbath restrictions. They took the very basic fourth commandment to observe the Sabbath, to not labor on the Sabbath. They expanded it into hundreds, if not thousands of injunctions, meticulously detailing everything that was and was not permitted on the Sabbath. They turned this this day of rest into this massive burden. Then we're not going to go into all their Sabbath law again, but I'll just mention one more law they had that's relevant here. That their tradition stated it was unlawful to heal on the Sabbath. You could not treat illness or practice medicine on the Sabbath. If you broke your arm, you could not even set the bone until sundown because that's work on the Sabbath. The only exception was if a person's life was at stake. You could do only so much as to keep him alive. But this explains why this man with a withered hand was their perfect pawn. Because clearly his ailment was not life-threatening. Jesus could wait one more day to heal him. He didn't have to heal him on the Sabbath. Just just how warped and twisted their thinking is. They don't care about the man at all. They're just using him as as a, a tool. But if Jesus really were of the Lord, he would keep their Sabbath and he would not heal this man on Sabbath. So really, this whole scene is a setup. This is a, yet another trap the Pharisees try and set for Jesus. Now, sometimes Jesus just evades their traps completely, just sidesteps them. Other times, he intentionally walks right through them, but we see how he very quickly turns them around and the Pharisees find themselves trapped. And that's what's going to happen here. Verse 11, it says, And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? 
Jesus is not going to decline their trap. He accepts their trap. The parallel in Mark 3, 3 says that first, Jesus told the man with the withered hand to get up and come forward. He was just minding his own business. He was just sitting in the crowd. But now Jesus brings him front and center for all to see that this man will be an object lesson, not for their legalism, but instead for the Lord's mercy. And so with this man now standing there, Jesus makes a comparison. He says, what if you had a sheep? Sheep is in the singular, picturing a person like they've got one sheep. This is their only sheep. And that sheep happens to fall into a pit or a deep ditch on the Sabbath, where it's pretty clear it can't get out without help. This is your one and only sheep. So what are you going to do? Just going to leave it and risk its life until coming back the next day or, or what? It's pretty obvious to them, like given the, the value of a sheep back then, every single one of them would have just jumped in lifted it out with considerable effort. But wait, I I thought you weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. You weren't supposed to do this type of labor on the Sabbath. But you can see the point Jesus is making in that every single one of these Pharisees would have very quickly jumped in that pit. They would have found some way to take exception even to their own laws so long as it benefited themselves. Their laws serve them, not God. They served self, not God. And so to avoid the loss even of a single sheep, they all would have found some way to make an exception to their own Sabbath tradition. And so Jesus says, verse 12, How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. You see how Jesus in turn catches the Pharisees red-handed in their own hypocrisy. They hold to... Their Sabbath law with a double standard, which just evaporates their trap for Jesus. He uses yet another argument from the lesser to the greater. Just how much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Like vastly. So all the more reason to take exception with these these phony Sabbath laws, especially when the well-being of a fellow man is at stake. I mean, keep in mind, God's law did not forbid doing good on the Sabbath, helping others. That was their law. But such man-made laws can and should be disregarded. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Like we learned last week, God gave Sabbath to Israel as a blessing, a day of rest. God was doing good to man on the Sabbath by giving him a rest from his toilsome, wearisome labor. And so... Of course, they should take opportunity to do good to one another on the Sabbath. There's no better day to help others than on the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Look, the Lord of the Sabbath says so. Case closed. And Jesus, as the fulfillment of the Torah, shows he's the final interpreter of the Torah. That includes the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. The Pharisees only ever asked one question. Is it lawful? Is it lawful? And we should ask that, but, but they never also asked, is it good? Is it right? Is it kind? Is it merciful? They subjugated human life to religious tradition. Jesus had no tolerance for that, and neither should you. Their warped, legalistic, self-serving worldview essentially led them to have more compassion for a sheep than for a man who was suffering. I mean, any system like that is just worthy of rejection and condemnation. 
You can say the same, for example, for the, the secular humanism of our day, which has become its own legalistic, self-serving type of religion that is clearly proven it values money and animals and the environment way more than human life. Now, in response to all this, Mark 3, 4 says that the Pharisees kept silent. They didn't respond. They couldn't. They couldn't say anything. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or not? They couldn't, like, outright disagree with that, that it's unlawful to do good on the Sabbath. But they couldn't, like, outright agree with it either. If they approved of doing good and hence healing this man, well, that they'd be violating their own rules, their own traditions. They'd undercut their whole system. They, they can't open that door. And so they're just trapped in their unbiblical, contradictory traditions. So all they can do is remain silent. And recognizing that the trap has been turned back on them, Luke 6.11 says that they were just filled with rage. That's it. Their only response. They were seething with rage, but they couldn't say anything. They were, they were trapped. And Jesus, too, was angry. Mark 3, 5 says that as they remained silent, Jesus looked on them with anger. Now, of course, for him, this is a righteous indignation, for they have diminished God's glory and are blind to the truth. But it didn't last long. It says it quickly turned to grief. It says he then became grieved at their hardness of heart. It was just sad. They were just so blind. What would it take for them to just humble themselves, admit they're wrong? Now, how long must this game continue? They're, they're, they're so set in their ways, no matter how contradictory and irrational, and when they're clearly proven wrong, they just dig in. They would rather oppose God himself than repent and admit they were wrong. Now, so far, the argument of Jesus has silenced the Pharisees, but it's not convinced them. But we all know actions speak louder than words, so maybe... Maybe his actions will do something. Verse 13, it's time for action. It says, then Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and it was restored to normal like the other. It's time for Jesus to heal this man publicly. He, he cannot wait for the next day. Now, now he has to heal this man right now. To not do so would be to give in to their traditions. Everyone there, they, they had to have inherently known that, of course, it's right to do good on the Sabbath, but they were powerless to challenge the Pharisees. Jesus is not powerless. He challenges them, and he has the power to back it up here. This is, this is an amazing miracle. You see what happens, right? The, the mechanics, Jesus, what does he tell the man? He just commands him, like, stretch out your hand. And after that, what does he say? Does he say, like, be healed, or does he touch his hand? doesn't do anything. We see Jesus saying, doing nothing else here. He doesn't ask anything of this man. You can even see how the faith of this man is not even questioned. It's irrelevant. The power and the mercy of Jesus are on display here, not, not the faith of this man. We don't even know if he looked upon Jesus with faith at all. It doesn't matter. This is about the Lord and his power. But as he stretches out his hand, we get the picture that as soon as it stops moving, it's, it's healed. That The miracle has already taken place. Everyone expected to see his withered hand out, stretched out, but instead they saw that as soon as his hand finished, it was back to normal, just like the other. 
This was another undeniable miracle. I'm sure everyone else there was, was gasping and, and with excitement, with wonder. I mean, just, just picture it. This is the creation power of God at work to restore a hand so undeniable. But so this is about the Pharisees. How are they going to respond? Sadly, it's the opposite of how you would hope. The total opposite. Verse 14. It says, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. Again, the Pharisees, they started that, this whole trap. They expected Jesus to heal on the Sabbath. That was their trap. And Jesus has healed on the Sabbath, but their trap has been sprung. It didn't work. Still, this miracle should have led them to, to humble themselves, fall down on their knees in adoration, repent, beg for mercy as they behold the Messiah. But instead, when Jesus healed that man, it only it made them more angry. They wanted to kill him. It just elicited malice. Look, we all know when arguments fail, people quickly resort to personal attack, to mudslinging. Just every presidential debate, just give it a little bit of time. It'll happen. But here, though, they, they take it, they're going way beyond personal attack. They're now having a, a murderous intent. They want to kill him. This word for conspired, it's a Semitic expression for a plot. The word for destroy is intensified to destroy completely. It's like a mafia member saying he needs to get rid of somebody. Everybody knows what it means. This is time for Jesus to go. Why do they want to kill him? We said at the beginning that some of the main motives for murder are lust, money, and power. For them, this is about power, which in turn all boils down to self. They wanted to be in control and effectively worshipped by the people. They wanted to be the lords of the Sabbath. But Jesus stands in their way. He's a hindrance to what they want because they don't play his game or they don't, or he doesn't play their game. He doesn't heed their authority. So they have to take him out of the way. You recall later, even Pontius Pilate could very easily see through their religious smoke screen as to why they were really handing him over. He identifies Matthew 27, 18, that the Jews handed Jesus over because of envy. They were jealous of Christ's power and his popularity because it diminished their own and it could no longer stand. Now, they, they couldn't kill Jesus just yet. They're too afraid of the people. They know the people still have a lot of power if they ever, you know, organized. They're afraid of the people. The people still favor Jesus as a prophet, too popular. The Pharisees have a lot to lose if the people turn on him, so they, they have to whittle down his respect in the eyes of the people. They're, they're going to buy their time. They're going to plot. But now begins in earnest their murderous intent, and that won't change until the cross. But just, just realize the hypocrisy and the irony here is so unmistakable. They found it completely unacceptable to heal on the Sabbath. They were perfectly fine with plotting to kill on the Sabbath. Like, you can't heal the sick on the Sabbath, but yeah, you, you can plot to kill somebody. In Mark, Jesus asked them, is it lawful to save a life or to kill on the Sabbath? And they never answered, but they effectively answered, kill. Like, you can't save, but you can kill on the Sabbath. They plotted to kill the Lord of the Sabbath on the Sabbath and thought they were lawful. 
this is a shocking climax to this story. Like, what did Jesus do wrong to invite their malice? Nothing. He was only doing that which was good and right. He just healed a man who'd been suffering for so long. But we all know that the heart of the Pharisees itself really is a reflection of the heart of man. Fallen man does not care if God aims to do him good. If it's not on his terms, according to his interests, he doesn't want it. And certainly if it interferes with God's desire, or rather his desires, God's will is a hindrance. I don't, I don't want God's will. Just the sinful, selfish, self-willed heart of man murders God all the time. Just, God, give me what I want or get out of my way, says the heart of man. And were we once any better, any different? But like I said earlier, it's against this, this backdrop of just utter rejection, hardness of heart, malice, that the mercy of Jesus really shines, that we might behold him more. This is why Jesus came. He came to people he knew what they're lost, they're depraved, they're hardened. Romans 1.30 they're haters of God. That was all of us, haters of God. But he came to extend mercy, to seek and save that which is lost, to transform the lost, to take withered souls and make them new. That's a newness we all need, body and soul. We've all been mangled by sin. The good news is that this Jesus, he is able to make us new and he's willing he came to do good to humanity on the Sabbath, on every day. By his own death and resurrection, he, he proved he has the power and the authority to speak new life into dry bones. The stiff-necked and the hard-hearted, they turn away from him. They don't want a Lord, and they will not receive the mercy he offers. But the broken-hearted, not just broken in body, but broken in, in spirit, the poor in spirit, they receive the mercy he came to offer. In fact, though, it, it might kind of feel like two sermons in one. I wanted to include that the next passage here this morning, because it goes on to show exactly who or what this Messiah came to do and who he came to save. Who are those who will receive his mercy and benefit from his mercy and his ministry? Clearly not the Pharisees, but, but who? So let, let's keep going and find out really the second part, the ministry of the Messiah on display. And we'll see how these dovetail together. The mercy of the Messiah on display. Now, second, the ministry of the Messiah on display. The text blends right together. Verse 15 says, but Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Whether he was reading their thoughts or reading the room, it is pretty obvious that the Pharisees were plotting to kill him. He knew this. And so it's time for a strategic withdrawal. This was always Christ's response when he understood opposition had gotten fierce and his enemies wanted to do away with him. His response was to leave, to withdraw from the region. Now, don't confuse this with cowardice or fear. Jesus, we see him never being scared of opposition or death. Like he knew the mission for which he came would end with the cross. But he was on the Father's timetable, and until the appointed hour had come, there was no sense stoking the fire and inviting premature escalation. And look, when the time came, Jesus would accept his arrest, trial, and death boldly, courageously, without complaint. 
But that time is not now. That's a ways off. So he withdraws. Really, though, as often as we see Jesus withdrawing from his opponents, it's, it's, it's also like a sad form of judgment. It's not a good thing when the light of the world leaves you because you like the darkness. That's, that's not a good thing. It's like John 3 says, Jesus is the light of the world. He came to give light to men, but the darkness, they hated him. Men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. And so the light eventually is is taken away from them, and all they have left to wait for is the outer darkness. This is a warning for those who are hardened in heart. But thankfully, that did not describe everyone. Verse 15 continues, saying that many followed him, and he healed them all. So Jesus decides to leave the area. It it seems like many from that synagogue followed him. They'd, They'd rather go with that guy than these like bitter, clearly angry Pharisees who are just seething. Let's go with the guy who just healed the man. Now, it does not say that people believed in him. We know the crowds could be just as fickle, but obviously many of them were sick and suffering, laid low under the burdens of life. They at least believed Jesus could do something about that, and he could. He did. Verse 15, he healed them all, and presumably this is still on the Sabbath. Now he's showing just extensively on a broad scale, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. This was the divine mercy Jesus came to extend. But verse 16, a bit interesting. It says after that, that he warned them not to tell who he was. This is not the first time we've seen such a warning. It's actually the third time so far in Matthew. But I know every time people get confused, because it seems so counterintuitive. Jesus became as the Messiah. I want people to know that. And so he, as he's displaying his messianic power and authority, why would he then tell people, like, okay, now don't, t- don't say anything. Don't tell anybody who I am. Just, it seems counterintuitive. So what gives? Well, what do the crowds think of Jesus at this, at this point? Who do they think he is? They would say a prophet, a healer, maybe a future king. Some might even say he's the Messiah. But look, even if they had the right answer that he's the Messiah, they still had a misconception of the Messiah. They were longing for the Messiah to be a political ruler to deliver them from bondage to Rome. They weren't really looking for a Messiah to deliver them from bondage to sin. Sadly, the people had, had many misconceptions of the Messiah, his person and his work. That's not really the people you want running your PR campaign. That would only serve to further propagate misunderstanding. And to top it all off, the people simply could not grasp the true mission of the Messiah until his death and resurrection. That's when the full gospel of the suffering servant would be made known, and that's when the silence would end. Now go tell everybody, go make disciples of every nation that Christ has come. But again, now is not this time. It's better for them to remain silent. And moving on, verse 17, Matthew makes a connection. Understanding that Jesus, he may not have fit the mold of the Messiah that the people were expecting, but he he certainly is fitting God's mold for the Messiah. He did not come to fulfill the people's warped personal expectations of a deliverer, but he came to fulfill God's stated expectations of the deliverer as found in his work. Even the fact of his withdrawal and not engaging in conflict with the Pharisees, that was part of the Messiah's prophetic plan. 
that he would be meek and mild and humble and gentle. So Matthew sets us up next, verse 17. He says, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. And after this, he goes on to quote Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, the first of the servant songs of Isaiah. There are four what are called servant songs in Isaiah, found in chapters 42, 49, 50, and then famously 53. And each tell of God's special servant, this figure who would come and serve God. How does this figure serve God? Well, it's by bringing salvation and deliverance to Israel. And not just Israel, it says all the nations. He brings righteousness and justice to the ends of the earth. Elsewhere, we expect this servant figure to be a strong, powerful, conquering king, and, and he will be. But Isaiah 53 especially reveals that this servant must first suffer and die for sin. But it's very clear it's not his own sin. It's the sins of the people that are laid upon him. He's a substitute sacrifice, and that is how he will save his people. Now here and elsewhere, Matthew makes clear that this servant figure is none other than Jesus. So now let's look at this reference to Isaiah 42, where in, in Isaiah, you have God speaking. This is coming from God himself testifying of this future servant. So let's see what God had to say. Verse 18, behold, my servant, whom I have chosen. Starts with behold, as if to say, pay attention, consider this one. This servant, the term for servant is not the normal term, doulos, but a term pious, which means child, son, or servant, dual function. I think that's significant. At the very least, we know elsewhere that this servant of God would also be the son of God. He can be both. This title for Jesus as God's servant clearly relates to the work of the Messiah. He came to render service to God. What kind of service are we talking about? Primarily, this servant is the one who will accomplish the salvation of God's people. The salvation God foretold and declared that this servant will accomplish. He will do for them what they could not do for themselves. He's sent by God as the chosen one. Many of the prophets look forward to this Messiah figure as being chosen of God, set apart for this special work. This is what John recognized when he saw Jesus and said, Behold! The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In John one twenty nine. This is what Paul recognized when he said that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Second Corinthians 5.19 Being God's son and faithful servant, it's not surprising then to hear God say next of him, verse 18, that he is my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. Just think of the enduring love for those who are parents that you have for your children. It does not even come close to the love that the father has for the son. The son is always pleasing to the father. He always does his will. Now, there are a few times where God the father speaks audibly concerning his son during his ministry on earth, baptism, transfiguration. Each time he says the same thing. What does he say? Behold, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. 
We see God himself hearkens back to what he said in Isaiah 42. So I would say, yeah, you should behold him. You should pay attention to this one. That behold Jesus. He's a servant of God. And in so doing, he's also the servant of man. He's a servant of sinners. Once again, against the backdrop of the, the wicked religious leaders, we see the work, the ministry of the Messiah shine and on display. They wanted to take life and murder. He came to give life by laying down his own life. They wanted to serve only self. He came to serve God and thereby us. He was hated and rejected by the world, but beloved by God. And look, they called Jesus the chosen one. One time, his enemies, on the cross, they mocked him as the chosen one. Save yourself if you are chosen of God. But even as he hung on the cross, as he was in the process of being slowly, painfully, unjustly murdered, he did not flinch. He he fulfilled this servant ministry on our behalf, firm to the end. Now, from here on, the rest of this, uh, in the rest of this reference to Isaiah 42, you have these eight consecutive future tense verbs of what, what will happen. This is what this servant will do. His future ministry will be like this. Now, of course, they're no longer future. Matthew quotes this, letting us know like this is, this is now present. This is what he is doing. What was foretold, we see fulfilled in Jesus. But still, as we want to continue beholding Jesus, we wonder, what will he do? What did he come to do? What will he be like? You can boil it down to, I guess you could say, four characteristics of this servant and his mystery. We'll do these quickly. But first, he'll be spirit-filled. Verse 18, I will put my spirit upon him, that this servant will be filled with the spirit of God. That's used all throughout the Old Testament to indicate God's choice, God's power, God's presence. And this servant will boast of all three in full measure, as it's elsewhere revealed, he's God incarnate. He's one with the Father and the Spirit. Jesus was always one with the Spirit, but it was significant that the Spirit be seen descending upon him at his baptism to show John the Baptist and us, this is God's servant. Remove all doubt. This is the chosen one. He is beloved by God, which means you too should love him and listen to him. Now, second, this servant will bring salvation to the nations. Not just Israel. He will bring salvation to the nations. This is what he's going to do. Verse 18. He shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Verse 21. Skipping down. In his name, the Gentiles will hope. It's noteworthy that this servant of God came not just to serve Israel, yes, but also in conjunction to serve the nations. That was always meant to be the case. As God's salvation was always meant to cover the earth, this servant will, it says, proclaim justice to the nations. Justice here meaning equity, that which is right. All nations have been characterized by wrongdoing in God's eyes forever, perpetrating injustice against God and man. But the Messiah will set all that right. He will proclaim the coming of God's justice to all. And only by by fleeing to him for refuge can one be made right with God. Like even the Gentiles will find reason to hope in his name. 
that will find him as Savior. This was always God's plan for this servant figure. In another servant song, this is Isaiah 49, verse 6, the second servant song, God says of him, Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It was always his plan to bring salvation to the nations. Jesus is doing that. Now, there's a third characteristic of this servant and his ministry. Third, he will be meek and not resist opposition. He will be meek and not resist opposition. This is verse 19. It says, he will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Now, regarding God's servant, it's not a picture of utter quiet as if he takes a vow of silence. Like plenty of people heard the voice of Jesus in the streets. It's not what that means. It's just talking about he will be gentle, meek. In the face of opposition, he will not resist. He will not cry out. To quarrel, to cry out, speaks of fighting, brawling, wrangling about words. It's just picture a, a heated argument or a shouting match. Everyone in here has been in some disagreement with another person. And the other person is not listening to you. I mean, clearly you're right and they're wrong, but they're not listening to your words, your argument. It's not working. You're not winning. So how long does it take before you raise your voice? As if they'll really listen if I'm a little louder. Then it'll really get through. How quickly we all get heated and fight and shout. Such is our pride where we must be vindicated as right. And that person who's wrong, they must be put down and proven wrong. And that is surely how all of Christ's opponents dealt with him. They try to shout him down. But this verse is saying that God's servant would not fight back. He's not going to play this game. He's not going to engage in our sinful quarreling. And look, Jesus, think about you and me, we're in the wrong more often than not. But he was always in the right. He did no wrong. He came to suffer wrong at being our sin bearer. That involved enduring all sorts of mistreatment. And that culminated with the cross. Jesus never cried out. His opponents cried out. They cried out to Pilate, same word, crucify him. Crucify him. They cried out. He did not cry out in response. Jesus remained silent even before his accusers. This too is foretold in the fourth servant song, Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. He did not open his mouth. And this Jesus fulfilled. 1 Peter 2.23 says that while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. This Jesus is the Lion of Judah, and he will return to reign, rule, and judge. But as Savior, he came first as the Lamb of God, meek, mild, tender, gentle, humble. He remained silent, accepting God's will as the sin bearer. He would take on himself all of our wrong. He didn't come to win arguments against the Pharisees, though he often did. But in the eyes of man and the world, he lost to the Jews, to the Romans, a failure, crucified, you're dead. He lost. 
But that doesn't matter. He came to be faithful to the Father's mission. And all of this was part of it, just to suffer so unjustly and not say a word, to be silent before his accusers, all so that our lips might be opened to praise our God. Now, there's one last characteristic of the servant's ministry, and this relates most to how he would deal with us in this present age. And so forth, we can say from verse 20, that he will be gentle to the weak and the bruised. Gentle to the weak and bruised. Verse 20, a famous verse. It says, a battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out. Reeds in the ancient world grew by millions. They had some use, like a pen, a flute. But if a bend occurred in a reed, it, it loses all strength, becomes essentially work, worthless. You either you know, break off the damaged part or just throw the whole thing out. You can get them for free. The same goes for a smoldering wick. Wicks of oil lamps back then were made of flax. But if you got a bad piece of flax, it would smolder and smoke and smell and not burn clean. So you would just pinch it off or get a new one. So cheap. If it's not working, just discard it. Throw it away and get a new one. So we have two pictures here of, of broken objects, things that are out of order. They're dysfunctioning. And so you might as well throw them away. They're ready to be discarded. But you probably intuitively know this verse is not talking about reeds or wicks, but us. Like, we are like this. This is talking about people who are battered, bruised, and broken. Sin, suffering, Satan, and the curse have messed us up. Like, all humanity is out of order. We dysfunction. But when God's servant comes, look, he would be doing no wrong if he just First time he bared the sword and just judged everybody for what we deserve. He'd, he'd be doing nothing wrong, casting everyone out of God's presence forever. It's what we deserve. But that was not the servant's mission. His ministry was to mend the broken. A battered reed, he's not going to break off and throw it away. A smoldering wick, he's not going to put out. To the contrary, he came to heal them. Far more than the man with the withered hand, he came to heal the broken. So what we have here then is a picture of the Messiah's tender mercy to the spiritually broken. And this is a perfect place to conclude our thoughts this morning. We've tackled this pretty large passage, but together it features this dark black backdrop of hatred and rejection and murderous intent toward the Messiah. But against that backdrop, his mercy, his ministry really shine. And this right here might be the pinnacle of that merciful ministry that a battered reed, he won't break. This passage, this, this, this contrast is very good news for the weak. Are you here this morning weak? Some of you are physically weak, meaning you've been suffering the effects of the curse in your bodies. You're sick. You're in pain. Your bodies are breaking down. It's only a matter of time for us all. We know that. Some of you, it's now. You need to know your Savior is merciful. If you cling to Christ by faith, he enables you to say, it is well with my soul. But, but even more than that, he gives you this sure hope. Look, this Savior by faith, he's already redeemed your soul. It's already happened. He's already spoken life to your soul. He's already given you his spirit as a down payment 
of your final glorification. So what are you still waiting for? You're waiting for, Romans 8.23 says, the redemption of our bodies. We still are. With creation, you groan in suffering under the curse. But what should you do? Well, it says just persevere. Persevere in the faith. We're, we're still waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. And so you need to wait. But wait in the right way. Like wait well. Wait in faith, in hope, in love, and joy. And by all means, pray for healing. The Savior is merciful. But know that our hope is not in this world or even these bodies. It's in a person, Christ. Our hope is in him, and we will be with him. So wait and hope. Everything we've learned this morning is very good news for the physically weak, and it's just as good news for the spiritually weak. Have you now or ever been spiritually weak? And I'm talking about those who are depressed, downtrodden, just spiritually battered and bruised. This could come from suffering in the world, unjust oppression. This could come from relational strife. This could come just from your own sin where you you fail over and over and over again. You love Christ, but you keep on betraying him. You keep wrestling and failing with the same thing. And as a result, maybe you sink into a type of spiritual depression and you pull back. You pull away from the Lord. You even pull away from his people, the church. You start to believe things that are not true. The Lord, he does not care about me. Why should he? I mean, I've, I've blown it for the hundredth time in the same area, surely God does not want to hear from me right now. He's got to be done with me. Maybe I'm not even saved. I'm like, why bother trying so hard anymore? These are all Satan's lies. Like, what kind of savior do you think he is? I mean that earnestly. Like, what's he like? Don't listen to the world, the devil, or the flesh for your understanding of what type of savior he is. You should listen to his word. Listen to Matthew 12. Now, of course, we know there is a warning here for those who are hardened in sin. And we know there are some professing Christians, you cannot say they're wrestling with their sin. They're just swimming in it. They're enjoying it with no report, remorse, repentance, no grief. They're unashamed. And like the Pharisees, they are complete hypocrites. Thankfully, God's grace is powerful enough to crack such hardened hearts. If that happens to be someone here this morning, I would just appeal to you to humble yourself and repent and resist Jesus as Lord no longer. But I believe the vast majority are not like that. You love the Lord, you hate your sin, you wrestle against it, but sometimes you're weak and you're failing. Well, for one, join the club. But two, like see the Savior's heart here, that he is tender and gentle. He's merciful. He's mild. He comes to those who are poor in spirit, with his salvation to to save them. He came to find the brokenhearted, not to snuff them out, but to mend them, to put them back together, to restore. Those who are battered and bruised by sin and Satan and suffering, he did not come to discard, but to heal and restore. So listen, when you are weak and depressed, you start to believe lies, and as a result, you pull away from the Lord and his church, And I hope you learned this morning, like, don't do that. That's the last thing you should do. When you are that weak, and we all have those moments, that's when you need to be closer to God than ever. You need to draw near. 
And yes, God very much wants you closer. He does not want you at arm's length ever again. The servant has already come. The suffering servant has already dealt with the enmity between you and God. He's put it away forever. Your sins are no more if you're in Christ by faith. Which means now the only thing keeping you from closeness with God is you. So this means now heed the counsel of James chapter 4. James 4, that same chapter that diagnoses the source of our quarrels and conflicts. And by all the same reasons, we quarrel with God. And it's not his fault. We move away. We separate ourselves. We conflict. Carried away in the flesh, we all just serve self at times. Spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. But it says in James 4 or 5 that God jealously desires the spirit he has made to dwell in us, meaning he wants us, he wants all of us to himself close in fellowship. And he gives greater grace, it says in verse 6, but you must humble yourself. He gives grace to the humble. He's opposed to the proud. What does this humility look like? It looks like James 4, 7 and 8, where it says, Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. And then verse 8, draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Just in a renewed repentance and faith, draw near to God. Don't, don't ever let your sin or your weakness keep you from him as if he's now angry with you. His anger was extinguished on the cross. If you're in Christ by faith, there's, there's no more anger. And when you are weak and failing, that's precisely the time you need to be running to him. Don't believe the lie that he doesn't want you near because you've blown it again. Just ask the prodigal's father. He's very happy to see him running back. God's mercies are new every morning. His grace is greater than all our sin. And so no more pulling away from God ever. Just don't buy the lie. Be assured in this Savior's love. If you're here this morning in Christ by faith, that means now you are God's beloved. You are just as well-pleasing because he sees us in Christ. And so draw near. You'll find that the closer you get, the stronger you become. And then you'll give him all the glory for it. See how this great servant of God has served us. And let's now serve him with our prayer, praise, thanksgiving, with our lives. Let's do that now. Our Father who is in heaven, we we praise your name this morning for the gift of your Son. This long-promised one, servant of God, who would be the servant of Israel and then us, the nations. And we are so thankful we are privileged to live on this side of the cross that we have in him a sure hope. The Savior has already come. What was foretold has been accomplished. And redemption is, is here. He's paid the price. The servant ascended the cross, took all of our guilt, shame, and sin, and swallowed that cup, drank it to the bottom, that we might now be forgiven and go free, have new and everlasting life. The Savior stands ready to heal withered souls and bodies for those who call to him. And so help us and convict us all to call upon him. Even us who, who do that, May we not stop doing that. May we call upon the Savior daily as we need him every hour. May we now live in his power and his joy and his peace, able to now serve him in return. Not, not to pay back, but we are happy to, to serve and give our lives to the ones who, who did just that for us. 
that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Give his life as a ransom for many. May his heart become our heart. But further convince the brokenhearted this morning of of your love for them, your your patience, your kindness, your mercies. They are new every morning. Just help us to see this tender Savior who is gentle with the weak, who love him, who binds up the brokenhearted, who come to him. Humble us. We know we will be exalted at the right time. But humble us under your Son that we may behold him forever. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.